I think that the same policies that were important for girls before the pandemic are going to be important for girls after the pandemic. So the sorts of categories that we're measuring are things that are evidence to improve girls' education and are probably going to be even more acute um, in this new world we're living in. Hi, everyone. I'm Samantha Williams, and you're listening to Inside Global Girls Education. Today, we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on girls. It has been a year for everyone, but when global shutdowns and school closures took hold in early 2020, 1.6 billion children suddenly found themselves out of school. Now, thankfully, many have since returned, but from the beginning, experts worried that the world's most vulnerable girls those whose attendance was precarious even before the pandemic, might be even less likely to come back. This is on top of the concerns about the services and support that girls lose when schools are closed. To help us better understand the reality that girls have dealt with over the course of this year, we're joined by my friend Susanna Harris, who is the Senior Policy Fellow and Co-Director of the Center for Global Development's Global Education Program. Welcome, Susanna, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Samantha, and thank you so much for inviting me to be on with you. Of course. I can't think of anyone better to speak to this topic, especially someone whose work I've admired and learned from for so many years. So let's talk about what's happened over the past year. Going back to March 2020, when shutdowns and closures spread from a few countries to most countries in the world. How did the Center for Global Development respond? And what did you start to worry about when it came to girls in particular? So back in March, which feels like a terribly long time ago for all of us, I'm sure, um, like almost every organization at the Center for Global Development, our business as usual, I suppose, slowed down. Um, and our education research on the impacts of um, the COVID pandemic on education and children really ramped up very quickly at that point. Um, and since then, our education program, as well as our colleagues in our gender program and our health program, have worked hard to produce research and policy products that we think are useful to policymakers who are making the really tough decisions about education, about schools, about safety nets, all the things that affect children during this crisis. We're also running a randomized control trial in Sierra Leone to try to understand whether their national distance learning program there is helping children stay connected to their education and whether phone calls from teachers help prevent dropout and learning loss. And we're disaggregating all of the data we collect in that RCT by gender, so we'll know how it's affecting girls in particular. That's an incredible amount of work in a short period of time when getting an RCT off the ground. On girls in particular, sort of cl close to the start of the pandemic, we surveyed nearly 100 organizations that provide frontline services to girls to try to understand what their greatest concerns were about the current and future well-being of the girls that they worked with. And we did this because we've learned from previous crises that impacts are often gendered and may have different consequences for girls and boys. So we often think about the impact of a crisis like this on girls, but there may be sort of um, equal but, but different consequences for boys. So 
for example, being out of school for girls may lead to early marriage or pregnancy, but for boys, it may mean that they enter the labor market prematurely. So it's quite important to understand um, not just the impact on girls, but sort of the gendered impacts more broadly. So that is that survey is complete. You have all the data from that survey, or is that something that's ongoing? Um, that's complete. That was published um, four or five months ago. Um, the RCT in Sierra Leone is ongoing, um, and we're running various other other phone surveys in a number of countries in Senegal, Malawi, Ghana, Pakistan, to try to kind of gather reliable, real time data about the, the impact of the pandemic on children. You know, there have been a lot of predictions around really troublesome things that might happen um, to to students who are out of school for this long, and then particularly to girls. Um, a lot of risk factors that existed before the pandemic, people feared would get worse uh, during that pandemic. And so I'm hoping that you can shed some light on what we're seeing so far on some of the real consequences of the pandemic and shutdowns on children and on girls in particular? Let's start with the most obvious things. So we know that school closures will almost certainly lead to learning loss. And we know that's true even during non-emergency school closures, even long school holidays, for example, in, in rich countries and poor countries. Those learning losses can endure. So um, in Pakistan, after the earthquake, schools were closed for more than three months and children's learning levels were significantly lower even several years after the schools had reopened. And if we look at the Ebola epidemic in, in West Africa, obviously another health crisis, we learned that sickness and, and death among parents has a big impact on girls' education, not to, not to even mention uh, the trauma of losing a parent. So first of all, so losing a parent may result in reduced income and so a greater need for children to work for money. In Sierra Leone, in the wake of the Ebola epidemic, this meant many children had to go out to work on the markets, for example. It also meant an increase in transactional sex, very sadly. Um, girls may become primary caregivers for sick members of the family and for younger siblings. And all of these responsibilities pull girls away from school. And sometimes that's the a pull away from school that becomes permanent and girls become the household breadwinner. And we can also see that this sort of combination of school closure and the disruption of other health services can translate into an increased likelihood of adolescent pregnancy, which again makes getting back into the classroom more difficult. But the data on that is, is still quite limited. So we haven't yet seen actual data on, on dropout rates. Um, UNESCO is predicting comparable rates of risk of not returning to school for, for boys and girls. Um, they're predicting over 5 million girls in primary and secondary school are at risk of not going back. And then these sort of whole host of additional concerns that you alluded to. So increased early marriage, increased adolescent pregnancy, reduced access to health services, um, less access to digital technology and so on. We have signs of these from a number of different surveys, but we don't yet have reliable comparable data where we can sort of make um, strong inferences about the sort of gendered impacts of, of this particular crisis. When thinking about dealing with those challenges and maybe drawing on some of the, the past health emergencies or even what is starting to be pieced together right now, who's in charge of getting it done? When you think about making sure that there is an adequate response to 
get every child and, and to get girls in particular who might have been pushed out for some of those reasons you named, you know, whose responsibility is it to get them back and to get them back on track? I guess the phrase, it takes a village, really springs to mind. And, you know, I think you, you need to have sort of the global education system trying to consolidate and, and disseminate the best possible evidence and data about what's happening and what's working in terms of getting girls back to school and getting them learning. So we do know quite a bit about what works and how do we make sure that that evidence, that data gets into the right hands. We need to help policymakers and government level in developing countries get their hands on that data and be able to use it effectively and sort of has, have as good visibility as possible of what's happening in, in their context and you know, what some of those solutions might be to, to, to make sure that girls are able to go back to school. And then at the community level, you know, equipping schools and equipping community groups and parents with the right information and the right data is, is going to be really important. So I think sort of trying to really understand what those barriers are, how they might have changed as a result of the COVID pandemic, and then thinking about how we can lower those barriers. Um, and I think that networks like Teach for All are going to be sort of super important in this response because you guys have got you know such a large deep network in so many countries and I think sort of using the power of, of that network and, and making sure that the right folks are being connected and around with the right data is going to be um, one of the key things to do to try to to try to address some of the terrible impacts that we're going to see. Yeah, there's no one actor that can really tackle this this massive challenge. And governments and policymakers before this, they weren't exactly sitting around on their hands. I mean, they had plenty of other challenges to to address. And so thinking about girls' education and the numbers of girls who are possibly not coming back into schools, um, coming back to school, or who are now going to be sidelined for the near future. Putting that, you know, thinking about that in the context of all of the other priorities, have you seen anything so far um, from particular governments or efforts around girls in particular that uh, stand out to you? I think there are some um, actors, both at government level and in the international community, who are really deeply committed to trying to improve girls' education and to make sure that um, every girl does have access to a quality education. Um, so I see a lot of governments taking it seriously. The government that we're working with in Sierra Leone, for example, I think they've been quite exemplary in terms of both getting their distance learning program up and running really quickly and also trying to get their hands on the best possible data that's disaggregated by gender to help them design and implement policy that's going to work as well as it can for, for all children and particularly girls. One question that I have is about this idea of that we will build back better. I think uh, some people have been talking about this uh, in the pandemic from the very beginning. You know, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. From your perch and from what you're trying to do um, at Center for Global Development, what does that better mean to you for girls? And considering that we're in it now, how do we how would we get to your definition of what it means to build back better the single thing for me that's most important as we talk about building back better is 
school systems that protect girls better than they did before. Um, and by protect, I mean genuinely keep girls safe from abuse and from violence. I find it incredible that the global education sector and actually the research community is particularly guilty of this, spend so much time talking about these really marginal increases in learning rather than the fact that millions and millions of girls experience sexual violence at school and this is violence is often perpetrated, perpetrated by their teachers. Um, it just seems absolutely unacceptable to me that we can let this happen in schools every day in every country in the world. And so my greatest, um, my greatest hope for building back better is that we take that seriously and make sure that as girls return to school, we do a much, much better job of keeping them safe from harm. That is a, a very very good point. Um, it speaks to the things that we normalize. Um, you know, people keep their daughters out of school to keep them safe. And yet we don't storm into schools and demand, why is this school so unsafe that I can't even send my child? So I am 100% in agreement that a shift to ensuring that schools are places of safety instead of trying to mitigate around um, making them safe spaces. That's a huge priority. Thank you for, for raising that point. And lastly, you know, we have so many people who would be listening to this who are working in classrooms or working across Zoom right now, um, or are in schools or in the community, people who are working from nonprofits, people for whom this work is um, intimate and personal and are giving of themselves every day to make sure that uh, girls and that all kids are continuing to learn um, and to be able to access school. But the pandemic is wearing on. We are going to continue to, to have to adapt. So just as a parting note for our listeners from that, those communities that I named, what would you offer in terms of a takeaway message of things that they can do um, for themselves as they do the work and for the girls and the people in their communities? Um, because we know that this is an extremely tough time to be in education. It's a really tough time to be in education. And I think that teachers and schools and students are just showing so much resilience at the moment as they as they persevere through it. And there are so many organizations and people doing absolutely wonderful work to, to try to support them. Um, I think if there were three things I could say to anyone who's listening, who's working in education to try to support girls as the pandemic um, wears on, I think, first of all, to consider the differential impacts of the pandemic on, on girls and boys. We've talked a lot about the impact on girls today, and that, that's the right thing to do, because we do know from previous crises that girls tend to suffer more in, in situations like this. And it's really important that we understand what some of those consequences and impacts might be and, and try to mitigate them as far as we possibly can. But it's likely that boys are facing quite specific challenges too. So 
you know, one particular example is that boys, um, as schools close, may be more likely to enter the labour market than girls and not return to school. So understanding where and if that's happening and, and how we can make sure that those boys come back to um, and sort of making sure that we're addressing the impact of this crisis with a truly sort of gender equal lens is is important. Secondly, I, I would say and urge people to use evidence. So we do have a whole host of studies from previous crises and increasingly from this crisis showing what does work well, for example, to help ensure that girls are able to return to school. Often this means thinking really carefully about the barriers that they face in returning to school, whether they're financial barriers or whether there are sort of particular challenges like violence um, that they faced during the closures, and then making sure that we can lower those barriers as far as possible to, to help them get back. So there is a lot of evidence out there already, and I think that we in the research community need to do the best job we can to make sure that's made available and accessible to people who are doing this really important work at the front line. And then finally, and I guess sort of reflecting back on, on our previous question, to really look beyond learning. So we know that the learning loss from this pandemic is likely to be devastating. And as we talked about, the education sector is and will have to continue to pull together to find ways to help girls and boys catch up that learning loss. But it's also likely that the socio-emotional impact on some children will have been absolutely catastrophic. So children who've been exposed to violence and abuse while schools are closed, or who are still exposed now schools are open, or girls who are disadvantaged by multiple vulnerabilities. So I think let's not just consider the average girl, let's make sure that we can support every girl to get the education they need and deserve as we start to move into a new phase of this pandemic. Well, Susanna, I have so enjoyed getting to talk to you today and learn from the insights and data that you all have been collecting for, um, for months now. And I think that this is just such valuable information for the education community, for the girls' education community. So thank you for sharing that with us and for making time to come and have this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Samantha. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, the work that Teach for All is doing is, is so important, and I look forward to continuing to follow your work and the work of your colleagues. Thank you, Susanna. So you've heard Susanna speak about the wide ranging consequences of this pandemic on girls. And as we were wrapping up, we talked about what it's like doing this work on a daily basis. I'm now going to take us over to Nigeria, to Ogun State to be exact, where Timitope Ifegbesen has been working in communities since before the pandemic, and then had to quickly pivot to figure out how to keep serving the girls and women around her when everything shut down. I was fortunate enough to meet Temetope in person during my last international trip back in February before the shutdowns, and she is truly just a powerhouse. Temetope is a Teach for Nigeria alumna, she is a Global Girls Education Fellow, and the co-founder of the Empower Her Initiative, which provides classes, microloans, and skills in financial literacy to connect girls and women with opportunities for financial inclusion and empowerment. So tell us a little bit about the community where you're teaching and where you're working. The community where I worked initially 
um, where I was able to run my projects, particularly when the pandemic was really strong and there was the lockdown and all was a, a rural community. Um, in fact, it wasn't just one community. Actually, I had to work in three communities at the same time. So there were rural communities with um, limited access to, you know, standard or should I say basic amenities, you know, road, water, healthcare, and things that were not sufficient like you would have in a city or something. So most of the people are farmers and petty traders, yeah? And um, many of them kind of, you know, know one another, they trust one another. There's a lot of um, kinship thing going on. There's a lot of emphasis placed on um, relationships, family relationships, cultural activities, and, and things like that, yeah. So that's what the communities were like. I lived in one of the communities, and two of my um, partners for my project were in, the, were in each of the other two. So it was easier for for me to access those other two to execute my projects. So yeah, so tell us more about your project. The name of the um, project that I started was Empower Her Initiative. I'd always been of the opinion that when we need to bring interventions to people who need those interventions, they should actually um, have a part to play. They should be asked what they feel would be a solution such that whatever we bring to them would be tailor-made for them. And so that was why it was important for me that we had conversations with the women, we had conversations with market women, we had conversations with the leaders of the market women in the communities, and they really, really helped in you know, mobilizing women. Um, for our project. Mm -hmm. After we were able to get the women on board, we got them to buy into attending financially tracy classes, you know, teaching them things about needs and wants, prioritizing, planning and financial mapping and, and all of that. We went ahead to give skills acquisition to some of them. So we, we had women who learned to make soap. We had women who learned to make... Um, body spray like perfumes we had women who learned to make air freshener body creams disinfectants and stuff like that and we provided materials for them to start up their businesses that's really incredible we started to give interest-free soft loans and those who were diligent in you know returning their loans and all of that we proceeded to give them micro grants to you know just support their business and expand their business some of them who even already had businesses still joined in the skills acquisitions so that whatever skill they learned became like a second um, source of income for them and they were mostly funded by ourselves and how many women did you reach through the project initially for instance when we did the when we did the financial literacy, we covered 84 women in two communities. Mm -hmm. Then when we did the first skills acquisition, we were able to work with 26 women who have gone ahead now to train other women. Um, so it became like train the trainer session. Mm -hmm. 
So they learned the skills, they're making money from the skills, and then we now started to attach other people to them. We are on 836 women. Wow. Okay. And I mean, Timmy Tope, tell me, why did this matter so much to you? I mean, this is a huge amount of investment and sacrifice on your part, on uh, your partner's part. So yeah, why was this so important to you to do? It was so important to me because I started to see myself in those children that I worked with. When I was little, my mom was a single mom, had to take care of four children. She wasn't financially literate. She she didn't have an education. So it was super difficult. There were times that I knew, I remember that she sold things, but it wasn't still enough or or she just didn't make the most of the businesses. That was one of the reasons why I felt it was important that those women also got financial literacy. Mm. She was a single mom and she couldn't really afford to take care of us. We were subject to a lot of things from um, sexual assault to all manner of things because our mothers just couldn't particularly take care of us. And my siblings and I had to work as domestic helps at people's houses and we had to just go through a lot just to get um an education but my, my mother was particular about that so when she took us to you know different places where we worked and they would ask her how much she wanted to be paid monthly or something she would say no she didn't want to collect any money they should use that money that payment to send us to school so each each of the places where i worked as a domestic help i went to school so i wasn't just at home that was sort of the only way she could get us to have an education and then it was tough going to school working late into the night trekking all manner of things actually was super tough and i just didn't want these kids that i had worked with in this community to experience any of those things particularly the um sexual part of it i just didn't want i just didn't want them to be exposed to any of those things and that was my drive and so now that that schools across the country have reopened and where you're teaching um are you seeing that girls are coming back to school at the same rates as boys yes absolutely which 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 is such good news um Yes, girls, I mean, resumed as much as boys did. Fantastic. Um, that's so good to hear. I want to ask about um, early marriage and pregnancy. Those are two other things that people in the global community have been watching very closely. Have you seen any increase in, in either of those in the communities? So in the communities that I worked in, no. No, um, we didn't have any um, record of of the, in fact, early marriages were, are things that do not even happen in that part of my country. But in the northern part of my country, it did happen in large numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I I even have a friend who 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 was just lamenting that one of his brightest girls had just been married off. Mm. So in the northern part of the country, it's really it was really prevalent. In terms of during the pandemic, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. Teachers trying to reach their kids, and um, you know, a lot of virtual work and all of that. But you know, it's still not the same as in-person instruction. So since you are in the classroom, 
are you seeing any of the, you know, are you seeing a, a loss of learning or that the, your students really fell behind uh, while schools were closed? Okay, so one of the things that we did, my partner and I, still under the umbrella of Empower Her Initiative, was to keep learning going for the kids during the school closure. So we used to go into the communities. We taught in you know small groups rather than you know large number all through that period. Mm-hmm. I remember the day I decided that was that was in April. I, I just I woke up feeling so bad. I, I started to cry and I made up my mind I was going to go into the community. I was going to be as careful as possible. I was going to get the kids to be as careful as possible. So I bought soap, I bought hand sanitizers. I went to a seamstress. They made lots of face masks. Oh, wow. And then um, I distribute, I would distribute to the kids. So there was no one that had any excuse that, oh, I, I don't have face masks. Take, I have. Sit down, let's learn. And I taught them. It was fun. We used to do that three times a week. It wasn't like we covered the entire curriculum, but I would say that the learning loss was really, really minimal. But one of the things that I noticed was rampant was the fact that teachers just started home lessons all over the communities. People, there were home lessons everywhere. So parents also didn't want their kids to just sit at home. I mean, these were kids that didn't have access to internet or even radio or, or television or whatever. So parents would pay a token and teachers would teach every day, everywhere. There were teachers who just set up home lessons. As a matter of fact, some of my girls who are in secondary school also started lessons for kids and they got paid. Okay, so these were girls who themselves were secondary school students, but during their time, they also ran lessons for the younger kids. Yes, yes. Initially, they would come help me because my my lessons grew so large. It, it wasn't just children from my school anymore. It was children from all over in the community. So one person would come with three of our neighbors and stuff like that and their friends. And so it became so large. So I just got some of the girls in secondary school who were already in secondary school to come support me. And eventually, decided to do it around their areas as well. So some of the women that came to learn came with their girls, came with their daughters, because it was one of the things that I had stated. So if you have a girl child at home, bring her. Let's come learn together and everything. So it wasn't, this wasn't difficult for them anyway, because usually on market days, I, I realized that what was the impact on their daughters, on the girls during your project? Girls would not come to school. They would hold their daughters back mm-hmm. on the days that are market days. So that, that was one of the challenges in that community concerning girls' education. Um, so, I, so I used that same concept to get them to bring their girls to learn. So um, one of my mothers, I went to visit and she said, she, she learns to make soap and air freshener and all. So since I started selling these things, I have not lacked money. My heart was full of joy that day because this was someone who was struggling, really, 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 really struggling 
to keep up. She has four kids. Mm. And she said, I have not lacked money. I remember that sentence. It was, was just like a major thing for me. And she called me a few weeks ago. And she told me, Feromi wanted to talk to me. Feromi is one of our daughters. She gave the girl the phone. And Feromi said, guess what, Mr. Mitokwe? I came first in the examinations. I had first position in my class. And I just thought, yes, this is what I live for. Hearing that. So, I mean, is that your goal? What What is your goal in doing this work? Not only for the women, but for what you hope will happen for the girls in your community? I wanted the girls to be able to not be limited by finances. Mm -hmm. When I first gained admission into university and um, there was nothing, but I just went, I just went. I didn't even know, the day I went to university, I didn't even know where I was going to sleep because there were no accommodations provided by the school. But I went, made friends quickly one day and told them, oh, I needed to squat with you and... And that was it. But on the long run, I had to drop out because of finances. It was so difficult. And then um, I came out, worked, saved up, went into another university. And, you know, this time I was older, so I was wiser. So I had to devise different means of, you know, making money, doing different stuff. And I told them this story. And I think it drives them. Nothing is stopping you. Definitely not finances. Wow. Such an incredible story. Thank you. And I, I can completely see how hearing that and then when they look at you and see what's possible, it really changes things for them. It's always important. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. And last question, which is one of the themes or one of the ways in which people are trying to make sense of everything that's happening right now is that this is an opportunity to, you know, to, to reset and build back better, build an education system, you know, build a world that's better than it was before COVID. From your perspective in the work that you do, what does better mean to you for, for girls? So I would use my communities as a context. And I would say better would be that there's, that education is inclusive that education is inclusive for the girls. There's a lot of focus on on the boys, which I am not saying is wrong, but there's need for getting the girls on board. Even in the classrooms, in the schools, there's need for the girls to um, start to practice leadership. All of those roles that school management and authorities based on our patriarchal um, society they believe that oh boys should be should be the one doing this and boys are taking over and little little tasks that they give boys and those tasks build them to become better leaders we can also those tasks with girls let them also be built be built up yeah then i would say mentorship oh my god it's i think it's so important if girls had someone to look up to someone who is tracking them, helping them track their self-improvement and everything, I believe that they would do better rather than being left by themselves. In schools, let there be enough maybe restrooms for girls. It's one of the things that keeps girls from school when they're on their periods. They just totally disappear. We know, we will just know that these three, four, five days that we don't see this person at school, She's on her period. Why? Because there are no restrooms. 
or, or anywhere for the girls to actually feel safe enough to take care of their hygiene needs at that time. So I feel that we need to be more deliberate about ensuring that these kind of things are not what keeps girls out of school. I agree. I believe that digital literacy is key. The future, in fact, the future is already now, it's already here, and we've all gone technology into technology, and we don't want girls to be left behind. We don't want we don't want them to be groveling in the dark while everyone else is, you know, making progress. So they need to come along and join the train. So digital literacy is super key. Financial literacy, ah, which is something that I am very, very in particular about, is super important. Entrepreneurship and all of that for girls. Because the truth is, the girl that is empowered in all of these ways, I'm telling you, her kids will not be illiterate when girls are super equipped. They are, they become more forward thinking. They, their perspectives change. Their horizons are broadened, and they want to pursue more because suddenly they realize that they have more in them. You know, see, when I dropped out of school initially, the first time I dropped out of the university, my third year, I, I started working, you know, doing petty jobs and everything. I wasn't comfortable because I had tasted education and it had helped me to see that there was more in me, that I had more, I had more, I had more, I had more to give. There was something in me and I needed to get an education in order to be able to pursue those goals. The truth of the matter is some of the things I've been able to do now, I didn't know that I had the capacity for them, but if I didn't have an education, I would not even be able to explore them. So that's what education tends to do. So everybody needs to up their game and be deliberate for the girl child. Thank you so much for sharing that vision. Yeah, thank you so much. Huge thanks to Susanna and Timmy Tope for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have any thoughts or follow-up questions, remember you can always reach us at teachforall.org girls and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Take care.